Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to the Catholic Scientist, where we approach Catholicism with minds of scientific reason and the eyes of faith. Today I'll be talking with my good friend Jill Wood about psychology, free will, and how all of that relates to our Catholic faith. Jill raises the IQ of any room he's in by an insane amount, and he's always got witty comments up his sleeve. So I think this will be a really enjoyable episode, and I hope you like it. Without further ado, Joe Wood. Hello, uh, good afternoon or morning, depending on which other of those you're listening to this podcast on. I love that beginning. I also love the flashing clock behind you. What time is oh, it? Oh, yeah. This <laughs> is yeah if you if you decrypt the numbers it actually reveals the uh middle name of uh saint peter wow good, good luck with that uh what even is that catholic am i a scientist. bad catholic for not knowing the middle name of saint peter i, really <laughs> I don't, don't know if they have middle names <laughs> it's got to be like tiberius or something something <laughs> roman that ends in us you know they call it they call him mr t <laughs> right uh, anywho Shall we begin in prayer? That's okay Let with us. You. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for this beautiful day. Bless this conversation we are about to have. May your Holy Spirit come upon our minds and our hearts as we talk about psychology and faith, how those are intertwined, and how we can use each of those to seek you further. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the Father, and in the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, an introduction is in order. I am speaking with someone today who is very dear to my heart, a good friend. His name is Joe Wood. And if you're listening to this, you probably know me, so you probably know Joe Wood. Do you want to, do you want to give us a brief intro about yourself, Joe? Who are you? Um, my name is Joe Wood. My social security number is zero 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 zero. My blood type is O positive, and that's the type of uh, mentality I like to take into things. Positive. Wow, that was brilliant. I I'm scared for what people will do with that information. Uh, they sure. can they can take my like five bucks. Yeah, exactly. It's only a small amount of money. Uh, so I know Joe from Canisius College, where we go to school. He is currently majoring in psychology and creative writing. If you know me, you know I've roasted psychology way too many times, and I have called it anything from a soft science to a pseudoscience to a non-science. But here we are on the Catholic Scientist podcast, and Joseph Wood, a psychologist, is going to speak to me about psychology so it must I mean, be to science. be fair, if like if psychology was like amongst if like if like all the sci- the sciences were at like uh, at like a at, like an ice cream bar, like you'd have mm-hmm. chemistry as like the rocky road, and then I mm-hmm. think on the other end you'd have like a soft serve ice cream machine. That'd be psychology. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, like everyone's drawn to the soft serve. They like, are. That, they that's where yeah, all the numbers go. Like, the, the good flavors. <laughs> and I like how you said ice cream bar because. All the chemistry jokes involve going to a bar, and oh, oh no, we were, we were, we were much less. Uh, 
outgoing. <laughs> yeah, there aren't going to be any chemistry jokes on this episode, though. Hopefully not. Um, okay, so I'm looking at the outline, looking at Joe's comments, and the sky is parted, oh. <laughs> and all could hear God's voice say, this is my beloved son. He's kind of okay. <laughs> and that referring to Joe Wood, because he is God level. <laughs> I'm at best Percy oh, Jackson. <laughs> right. Okay. So I guess I'm going to start out with a question. Uh, how did you decide to get into psychology, first of all? And have you seen any overlap between psychology and your Catholic faith that you grew up with? It's funny. Um, so when originally, so like my dad's a physics uh, teacher, mm-hmm. professor at um, Canisius College. Uh, and he kind of like, you know, he never pushed me to do really anything involving the sciences, but like, I always kind of wanted to do something in sciences. And I like, I took AP physics senior year because I was like, yo, I'm like, this is my moment. Like I, I'm ready to go to CERN. But, uh, he, but when I did take it, I found out that physics is awesome, but, uh, I, I just, I just can't do it. Oh, electricity and magnetism freak me out to this day. <laughs> I still have flashbacks to the AP exam, just like horror stories. <laughs> so I like, so I knew I didn't, I wasn't interested in that as much, mm-hmm. but I did take psychology my senior year, and like I love, I love the class. I loved uh, kind of, I loved a blend of humanities and science, because like people are like inherently kind of like they're logical and crazy, and it's weird to like kind of like apply, like um, uh, it's weird like in a lab and like physics or chemistry. Human, if you write down human error as like a source of error, like you're gonna get like laughed out of the room. But like really, <laughs> human error is like, you know, it's, it's it's not the worst excuse you could give in a psych lab. It's not. And um, it's 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 interesting too because my mom always wants. She's a nurse, but she studied psych all the time when she went to college. And I never knew that until I declared my major. And then she was like, she was like, oh, I always wanted to do psych. And I was like, was that her just like programming me since like the day I was born and like being like, hey, here's like a copy of Carl Jung. <laughs> like, just like subtle hints. Right. And um, and we would always, we would go to a church and um, psychology wasn't necessarily discussed, but it was always kind of an underlying factor in kind of how the, my perception of kind of the Catholic church. Uh, and kind of faith in general, because spirituality is not necessarily something you can quantify in psychology, wherein you can't really apply it in like a kind of practical sense. But similarly to how most famous um, physicists and scientists, Sir Isaac Newton and um, his kind of crowd were, you know, active members of I whatever, I can't remember if it was Catholicism or Church of England at the time, but they were active members of um, Christianity, and there's other uh, other kind of people of science of other faiths who kind of use science to kind of understand their faith and kind of vice versa. So I, I guess there's never nothing that like polarized the two sides for me. Right. I think that's a good perspective. I will say, when it comes to your mom kind of influencing you to join psychology. You know, it's a very real thing to influence someone to be interested in psychology. I speak from experience because Joe and many other people 
have tried to convert me for years and I think it's working. I might actually get a minor in psychology. Yeah. <laughs> I just put that on the air and it's really bad. Um, it, it was a long play. Like we've been friends for, Oh God, with like seven years by now. Yeah. And like I had that life. plan since day one. <laughs> it's been that long. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's kudos to you. I'll give you that. Uh, and like with the Catholic church and psychology, like I think it's a good perspective. Like they're not polarizing things, but you don't necessarily see the connections right away. And that's you know kind of what this channel is about. Cause when I'm in the chemistry lab, I don't see some connection to God when I'm mixing chemicals. And when I think of psychology and faith, the first thing that comes to mind is I don't even know if it's purely psychological, but I wonder like when I'm praying, is it like some kind of spiritual connection to God or is it just like something that's going on in my head? So I think it's just like some, what's the word? Um, Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Well, that's gotta be it. It works in every situation. Be careful, you might sound precocious. Oh my gosh, I was trying to think of this word the other day too, and I couldn't oh. think of it. Uh, um, like, you're unsure of yourself or... Insecure? Insecure, yeah. Why is that such a hard word for me to think of? Oh, no, it's this, always on my mind. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's just an insecurity on my part to say like, okay, is it all just in my head when I'm praying? And it, is it all just like neurons firing? But I don't think you could... You know, you could be a psychologist and not say that it's just that everything is just happening in the brain. Yeah. And some would say kind of similar to, you know, how sometimes in order to make a lump of coal and a lump of steel into a sword, you have to put it through the you have to put it through the forge. You have to test it. You have to temper it, hit it with an anvil. And only once you kind of do that, does it pop out as like this like super awesome sword. Right. So maybe if. You know, maybe sometimes our questions are meant to kind of deepen our faith. Yeah, definitely. So one thing I wanted to talk about today, and it'll probably be a pretty big topic, is free will. Do we have it? How do we exercise it? How does it relate to various studies you've heard about in psychology? So it's very broad, and I have a, probably a very basic understanding of it compared to you. So oh, God, with, man, I, <laughs> I don't know about that. I, I don't know. I'll start with the basics of what I think I know, and we'll mm. go from there. So the way I see it, there is a deterministic view, which says, like, everything is already determined, and even your actions, even if it seems like you have a choice in your actions, it's really determined by, like, social factors around you and your environment and everything you've grown up with and uh, stuff like that. And that would be like a hard determinism. But there could also be like a soft determinism, which says you are influenced by those outside social factors, environment, stuff like that. But you also have this capability to make your own choices, exert your own will, exert your own free will. And then there would be a free will, which says like, you have the ability to make any choice you want, no matter what the circumstances are, no matter what's gone on in your life in the past or what's going on around you. 
so those would be the three categories I would come up with would be the hard determinism, soft determinism, and free will. I don't know if that's anything you've come across before. Yeah, I, th I think that, I think it's a spectrum. That's definitely something I've, uh, I've seen through either classes or otherwise. Mm -hmm. Religiously, I guess, maybe would like hard determinism be early Calvinist philosophy, where John Calvin, his idea of predestination was that when people are born, they're like already like you, like, you know, if you're going to get into, hev into heaven or hell or otherwise. So they're like, Oh, if like, you know, if Jimmy's going through a rough patch, it's not because like Jimmy chose him because like, yeah, mm. yeah that's, that's what's in. Exactly. Like I was thinking the Calvinist approach, like, you know, God has his will, his plan for humanity and it's, it's set in stone and there's nothing you can really do about it. So that would be deterministic and it's not what the Catholic church would believe. But, yeah, the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church. I, you probably know more about this than I do. But is, is do they tend to lean more towards? Do they do they fully believe in free will, or is there any element of determinism that you've kind of seen? So I'm guessing that in the early church, they said, you know, we have complete free will, and you know they hadn't gone into psychology yet. You know, they were in this wonderful haven where nobody knew about psychology. It was we, we called that Eden. <laughs> right. Uh you're not wrong. And so they probably did believe, you know, we make our choices individually and we each have like complete influence over our lives. But the church has adapted as science has adapted. So like, you know, the whole creation and evolution thing, the church has adapted to say, okay, evolution has so much evidence, it's a valid theory. And the church accepts it, even though we have to maintain that the soul cannot come about through evolution. That's a side tangent that I probably shouldn't go down. But Tune back in for episode eight. <laughs> oh, probably. Uh, so the church does adapt with science. And I think the church would say, okay, these psychological studies are valid. They're providing enough evidence, just like evolution did, to show that we are influenced by outside factors, by our environment, um, our behavior is influenced by other people, and so maybe we don't have complete free will in that our choices are influenced by people besides ourselves and by things besides ourselves, but we still do have an overarching free will at the very least to seek god that's what i would say and i think that's yeah. what the church would say oh I, that's like almost i think that's like almost verbatim kind of the thesis of uh was it pope pius the sixth was that the one you sent me where he was oh, I like think pope pius the twelfth um oh, the 12th. maybe he was the sixth i don't know maybe i'm getting ahead of myself uh, that would be embarrassing if there haven't even been 12 piuses yet and i'm just like yeah pius the twelfth wrote this encyclical uh, there were yeah. a bunch of X's and lines. It was, it was one of them. Right. Caveman figures and all that. Uh, now, he, he did write something about that. He had something encyclical about, I think it was psychotherapy and religion. Yeah, yeah. I think that was it. Because, like, I remember you sent me that and you were like, hey, like, you know, yeah. <laughs> I think you were like, 
oh, you know, since, since you know, we're off on the quarantine and it's summer vacation, here's some homework. And I was like, oh, sweet. <laughs> That's how you know you, like, hit it big, like, friendship goals is when you're ready to do, like, your deep dive research project. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, you know, the fact that I was willing to even ask you to do that, I was like, that took some effort on my part because I'm like, I don't want to be that guy that assigns homework or reading. No, no. Especially because I tried reading it and I was like, what is this saying? What is this garbage? I mean, so I sent it to someone more intelligent than myself, but still, I don't know if, I don't know, it's hard. Dude, when you, when you said that like you couldn't read it, I was like, oh God, is it in like Latin? Like what language <laughs> was the Pope using? Right. Well, fortunately, I do have a catechism of the Catholic Church. So the first thing, this might uh, go off free will a little bit and just talk about like freedom and God's will a little bit, Mm. but I just want to provide like a little bit of background on what the church says and we can come back to it if there's a connection to the psychology we talk about later. So the first thing I think about with will is the Our Father when we say thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what the Catechism says about that, see, paragraph 2822, God's commandment is that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. This commandment summarizes all the others and expresses his entire will. So I hadn't really thought about that before, that God's will would just be based on love. There's a biblical basis for it, too. When someone asked, a disciple asked him, uh, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, love one another as I have loved you. But I hadn't thought about that in terms of God's will. And the catechism goes on to say, how do we do that? By acting in the way that Jesus did, because he perfected love and doing his father's will to the very end. The next thing I wanted to pull out from the catechism, paragraph 311. Angels and men, as intelligent and free creatures, have to journey toward their ultimate destinies by their free choice and preferential love. First of all, I think it's interesting how it says Mm -hmm. angels and men, as intelligent Mm -hmm. and free creatures, because we're like, wait, we're close to angels? That's interesting yeah no i remember when i was i think it was grade school my my religion teacher said that at least under his perspective that angels kind of when they made a choice they had to stick to it so Mm -hmm. like when when lucifer kind of disobeyed god he was permanently condemned to be the devil it wasn't like he couldn't like wait out five millennia probation period or something right as people you know it's a little little more flexible and morally gray Mm -hmm. yeah and i also think it's interesting just because you know angels don't have a body like we do and they don't have a brain like we do but they still have they're still viewed as intelligent and free creatures there's one other thing i wanted to look at it's got to be here somewhere well that's not it there it is. People in darkness, uh, you're going to have to wait a little while more in darkness. <laughs> See, uh, I, I fully believe your brain works in like where you can just like, you can just think of certain words and then your brain just like goes back and enters the code, files it's like data and then reemerges. 
Oh, completely. It works the exact same way as your alarm clock does. There's like a secret code of words Im embedded in the numbers in my brain. It's, it's a <laughs> wonderful thing. Paragraph 1734, though, says that freedom makes man responsible for his acts to the extent that they are voluntary. So that's talking about like, we do have freedom in a way, and that makes us responsible for what we do. Uh, in 1735, though, it says imputability and responsibility for an action can be diminished or even nullified by ignorance, inadvertence, duress, fear, habit, inordinate attachments, and other psychological or social factors. So I just thought it was interesting that, you know, even though this had registered in my brain before, it was a reminder that, okay, we aren't responsible for all our actions. And the church says that can partly be because we're influenced by these uh, other psychological or social factors. So I think the church is recognizing there that there are factors that go on around us psychologically and socially that influence our decisions and sometimes, you know, remove that responsibility from some of our choices, but not all of them, you know, going back to the paragraph before that we do have freedom and we are still responsible for our acts when they are voluntary. So I think that's a good indication that the church is, you know, somewhere in between that deterministic and completely free will perspective, like we talked about earlier. That's really interesting because oftentimes when you think Catholic church, you know, you think like rigid, rigid structures, uh, kind of harsh stances on sin. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, too, to think that things like sin aren't necessarily punished any less severely, but given certain situations, like you mentioned, they could possibly be understood in a better light. Right, exactly. So that's what the Catechism says. And I'm most interested in what would psychologists have to say? Noting that there definitely isn't a consensus among psychologists, but I know you have some psychologists that you've picked out and what their perspectives would be, Joe. I'd be interested in hearing that. Sure. And I, w I won't talk about Freud. Uh, if anybody was, anybody was too worried. Um, but I will <laughs> talk about a bunch of American dudes. I think it was American. Maybe the first one was British. But I want, I, I'm, gonna, I'm an American, so I'm going to say they're American. Um, the psychologist John Watson began what kind of we call behaviorism when he did a bunch of experiments that tried to prove that when people are born, depending on what environment they're in, shapes who they're going to be. So his, his, I think, famous quote, or maybe it's just attributed to him, was that he could, if given enough resources and kind of total power if he was given kind of an infant he could make like that infant into a basketball player or a scientist or really anything so like babies are just kind of moldable kind of plastic with kind of will uh, this was later kind of augmented by by psychologists like bf skinner who didn't necessarily lean so much into the what we do is kind of destined to happen, but he kind of said that if 
if you want to modify behavior, you need to use reinforcement schedules, either uh, rewarding or punishing people based on their actions, shapes their actions in the long run. Those guys kind of fall under the behaviorism. Mm -hmm. And if that sounds kind of like depressing, like, oh my God, I like, I was just born and now like, John Watson told me I'm going to be like some like uh, disc jockey or something. Right. That it, it, it does. And <laughs> the kind of response to that on the other end of the spectrum was, oh God, let me see if I remember his name, because there's two Carls and I don't want to get the wrong one. Carl Rogers. Carl, Carl Rogers uh, kind of pioneered, I think it was in the 70s, pioneered humanism, which was the perspective that humans ultimately have like they they have free will they have the ability to choose what to do in a situation even if they're put into a bad situation the right mindset will carry them through and carry them to where they want to be he said that all humans have like one basic motive and that is the tendency to self-actualize which means to fulfill your potential and achieve the highest level that of human beingness uh, very creative that we can and um, he kind of formed the basis of a lot of modern humanistic uh, therapies where you listen a lot to the client and it's no longer kind of the, the sole job of the, of the psychologist to kind of fix somebody, but it's, it's kind of a perspective that says that pe the people have the ability to change themselves. We as psychologists just kind of guide them on that path. Mm. It's akin to kind of the perspective that even though Louis Armstrong was born in kind of a rough kind of environment, he was able to become like the cornerstone of American jazz music. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there are some kind of discrepancies where it's like, oh, people have total free will and they want to be awesome all the time. Then why are they like, where did like the scumbags come from? Right. Where did kind of like, what about when people feel sad or when they feel a bunch of, more negative emotions that they can't control but they still feel anyway and that kind of for him he kind of tries to explain it a little as they encounter things from their environment that tests their ability to believe in themselves and if it tests it to a certain degree then you form kind of negative mental states and negative socio-cultural states Mm -hmm. and that explains it a little but there's also you know there there's issues with he never really addresses the cognitive neuro neuropsychology he never addresses uh, a lot of other things that kind of prove that maybe people don't have as much total control as they want to but mm -hmm. there's enough kind of support for both of them that neither theories have really faded okay it's interesting when i think of uh watson and skinner their perspective it kind of makes me think of uh, there's this book I just read by Malcolm Gladwell. I don't know if he's like an official psychologist. Uh, if you hey, well, we'll take him. <laughs> like valid in the psychological community, but he talked a lot about like uh, in some cases you could be given an abundance of information about someone and not be able to answer questions about them any better than someone who has only interacted with this person for five minutes, say. Uh, yeah. And that kind of relates to Watson and Skinner because I think of, I think they would say, okay, if you give me 
all the information you can about this one person, like their background, their environment, when they were born and as they grew up, they would say, we could determine uh, like what they become just based on those factors. Whereas uh, Rogers would say, well, there's some element of free choice in there. You know, there is some individualism, some humanism there that prevents us from knowing exactly. Oh, that's really cool. I'll have to, I think you've recommended it before, which you know, now, now I'll definitely have to read about Gladwell. It's interesting too, because it sounds like Gladwell touches on the idea that not only do people have the inherent ability to kind of change you know, what they want to do internally, but also there's the environment and how that plays a role. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to think kind of how in different situations we do tend to show different sides of ourselves. Like you wouldn't interact with, probably wouldn't interact with uh, your professor the same way you interact with uh, one of your, like, like one of your friends. Right. But then there are some people who would do that. They would just. would. And (laughs) we call them teacher's pets. (laughs) Exactly. Me. Uh, (laughs) It pays off. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I remember this one paper I wrote for, our religions in the East class that we had together. And I was talking, I went on like this huge rant about how there was this person trying to like, like trying to fit this uh, Buddhist culture under her own structures and her own Western knowledge. I forget which one that was. Uh, there were many nights where I kind of just read something very late and forgot all about it. <laughs> uh, poor Dr. Lee, we don't know what we learned in that class. <laughs> but anyway, I was talking about, like, I went on this huge rant about she tried to impose all this structure on these people that she really didn't know that much about. And oh, Living Buddhism. That's what it was. That was the book title. That was it. Definitely. I was like, okay, she's making all these generalizations about these people, and she's forgetting, like, the human elements, how there are going to be people who act counterculturally or don't make the decisions the same way everyone in the community would based on this element of free will. And Dr. Lee kind of wrote on my paper, like an interesting perspective. Uh, I hadn't thought about that. Uh, The fact that we can't make these generalizations about people shows that culture itself can't be a complete indicator of what someone's gonna do. So they do have somewhat of a free will in that sense. But there are a lot of other factors I realize, like what's going on neurologically, what's going on in your like close family that may influence you. And I don't have any answers. I'm just throwing stuff out here. No, this this, this is the part where we go like now, you know, congregation listening, go out and find the answers. <laughs> exactly. Like if you're listening to this podcast for answers, you're first of all, thank you. <laughs> no. Unless you have answers, Joe. I would. Oh, the answer is always C. <laughs> Even when it's not a multiple choice test. <laughs> Just write down C. You'll you'll make it. Right. I guess I'm satisfied with that. So, yeah, I'm. I'm. That uh, that meet that exceeds expectations. Wow, Harry Potter reference. <laughs> okay, I was wondering if we could talk about your work in the IAR. Uh, So this is the Institute for Autism Research at Canisius. And I don't want to go too deep into like the 
Not don't, too, don't worry. I won't, I won't bore anybody. Right. Anybody. Well, I just, I don't want to like hyper analyze mm-hmm. the people that you're working with here and like reduce autism to, you know, just the developmental uh, mm-hmm. disability, you know, recognizing that these are people and that we love them in the same way we would anyone else. But I was wondering if you could talk about what you do and if there's any relation between that and what we've been talking about. No, that, that, that's the best perspective to take, honestly. It's, it's the perspective I find myself having to remind myself when it's like, oh, I've worked X amount of years as a researcher in this lab. Like, I should, you know, I'm an expert on autism. And that's, and it's like, oh, but then like, I've never really experienced it. It's kind of like thinking that you know how cold Antarctica is, even though you've never been, but it's like, I live in Buffalo. I, I, I couldn't tell before. <laughs> That's enough. I, yeah. <laughs> I do that all the time. Um, interestingly enough, I remember I, I kind of, I, I, I told my mom yesterday about the question you kind of posed with the autism and kind of free will. And she actually mentioned it, anecdotally, I don't know how true it is on a global sense, but mm-hmm. that when she was an ultra server, she was part of like the first round of female ultra servers back in uh, X amount of years. I can't remember exactly. Yeah, <laughs> we don't we don't need to say that. Yeah. But the, the when she when she worked there, she noticed that sometimes priests would uh, like someone uh, who had autism if they wanted to get married, they would have to go up to the priest and basically go through Catholic counseling and try to get through the program. And sometimes the priest would say that because of this um, label, you, we can't necessarily uh, sanction this marriage really? because it's be, be, just because their perspective seemed to be that um, something that limits kind of their mental state might limit their ability to ch- choose or uphold Catholic values. And I, 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 I certainly hope no priests still do that. Mm-hmm. But I know that, that sometimes people may take that perspective. Uh, but autism in general, I mean, there's the, there's the clinical diagnosis where in a very broad sense, you have uh, someone that has what we like to refer to as stereotyped behaviors. And all that means is that they really focus on certain things. Uh, oftentimes, I do research with uh, high-functioning kids with autism. And when I'm interacting with them and like talking, they'll bring up uh, Pokemon, which is actually invented by someone uh, on the spectrum. Uh, and they'll bring up, and when they bring up Pokemon, they'll like, they'll know every detail about specific Pokemon. And it's like really impressive to like mm-hmm. see really young kids, like eight, 8, 10, 11, like just rattle off all these like really cool details about it. But then if you try to move the conversation to somewhere else, then it's, then it's harder to do that because they tend to focus on that one thing. Yeah. Um, and then there's also the component where there's um, social uh, or communication deficits where sometimes when you're having conversations, uh, it might, there's, there might be a inability to relate or carry the conversation or interact in kind of ways that you might interact with people who aren't on the spectrum. Um, that being said, uh, part of what we do at the Institute of Autism Research is develop inter- uh, interventions that help 
to both bridge the gap um, and kind of prepare the, the kids for uh, sometimes a world that asks a lot from them and then doesn't really know how to give them a lot of the leeway that they might need. And also to kind of teach them skills to really use their abilities in the best way that they can. Uh, oftentimes, one of the newest things we have is uh, we try to introduce um, them to like STEM related uh, field trips because since, since people with autism tend to gravitate towards rigid um, structures and systems, they're perfect for uh, STEM fields, especially engineering, mathematics, or anything involving kind of harder sciences because they really, they, their efficiency is kind of really a superpower. Yeah. And it just, autism in general, in my opinion, the best way to look at it is kind of a superpower mm-hmm. because and you have real life examples like uh, Anthony Hopkins uh, was diagnosed kind of later in life as being on the spectrum. Uh, I believe Greta Thunberg was also uh, on the spectrum as well. Mm-hmm. And both of them have really used their, their focus on certain things to really excel in their fields, uh, whether mm-hmm. it's acting or kind of waking the world up to environmental issues or anything in between. Really. Right. I totally agree how important it is to look at the gifts they have rather than their inability maybe to behave in a way that we perceive as normal. Like just seeing how they can be gifted in something like something like music, or they can rattle off these Pokemon facts, or they can be so hyper-focused on something that they're more efficient than we could ever hope to be. It's important to see that they compensate for what they may lack with, with something great in many cases and like when we pray for someone with autism i would say you know we don't pray for them to be the same as us we pray for them to be able to cope better with what they're going through well not what they're going through with uh it can be hard it can definitely be hard sometimes the biggest um concerns uh especially because i work with uh, with uh, children that have um, kind of on the higher end of the spectrum, which basically means that they can, their traits of social communication uh, tend to be uh, sometimes a lot, a lot stronger or more able to engage in those kind of facilities than some other people might, because it is a spectrum. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes it's, it's dealing with a lot of loneliness, yeah. the inability to kind of connect with peers and also even kind of, in a romantic sense, because I mean, I didn't, I didn't start talking to girls until like two years ago. Right. And like, I'm, I think I'm normal. <laughs> I mean, same, same boat here. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, they do cope with a lot and, you know, we pray for them to have the strength to deal with that. But I think, you know, we can get the wrong impression of people with autism or, another developmental disability uh, and say that because they're different than us, maybe they have less of a free will. And I don't have a good answer for that, like why they would have uh, the same free will as us. Because like like your example with uh, the priests not wanting to marry 
people who are on the spectrum, uh, or at least in that one case. I don't, I don't want to make a generalization that. No, oh. yeah, no, it's, it's, yeah, oftentimes uh, it is um, kind of individuals kind of in certain organizations being like, oh, you know, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll do this. And then it kind of, end up, it does end up kind of reflecting back on the institution. Yeah. You know, I was wondering just in the dead of night as I was trying to sleep, I couldn't sleep because I was like, uh, like someone with a developmental disability, like, I don't know, they think so much differently than I do and they interact with people and so, so much differently than I do. So it's hard for me to relate to like what their thought process is and whether they can turn their minds and their hearts to to things the same way I can like can they you know turn to God in the same way that you and I can can they can they understand the faith as deeply I don't have a good answer for that I have a good segue yeah let's go for it are you ready to hear the story of uh oh is he a saint uh he's not a saint yet but Thor uh Bishop Thorlack hmm Yes, I saw this on our notes, and I was excited. So Bishop Thorlach uh, was in, I think it was uh, 12th century? 12th century Iceland. Uh, and he, he, I think, joined the priesthood when he was a teenager. And at the time, the priesthood, especially in Iceland, was very kind of grassroots. There wasn't a lot of structure to it. Um, and he, when he came there he really did organize them to become basically like what we would see as kind of a modern, uh, modern, a more modern priesthood slash uh, monastery system. And people would often, they'd often note that he was like, he was a really hard worker and he adhered more to religious uh, doctrine and other uh, rituals and practices more so than like any other any other of his peers, and to the point where I think some of the local tribes were like, like dude, like we were just like it was like it was like chill before you came here. Like we got money from the church and we got to do whatever we want. Mm-hmm. And he was like, no, you must be pious as well. And they were like, no, we're gonna threaten your life now. And he was like, no, nah, fam, I don't want that. Wow, that escalated quickly. No, yeah, no, completely. And he he very much stood his ground and with such fervor and conviction that he was able to shape the the belief of entire nation at least at that time and many people speculate that he most likely was on the spectrum just because of his uh his his active decisions to be more of a introvert um than his other than his other peers kind of to the point where he he very much did prefer um, talking to God rather than talking to uh, anybody in the actual priesthood. Uh, and his love of highly ri- uh, rigid rituals and systems, uh, which really make people think that he, he might have been there. Uh, I know when I was researching him, I was on a blog, and one of uh, a father with a son who has autism uh, looked to say, looked to Thorlach as kind of a kind of a figure to kind of reinforce the idea that his son, you know, it is his son isn't diminished by anything life has given him. He's kind of almost empowered to be 
more Catholic because his son's like really into religious life. And now he has a figure to be like, well, I mean, you can be, you can be more like, um, you can be more like Thorlack in the fact that like you are just as, if not even more suited for religious life because of how much you care about it, partially due to your potential kind of presence on the spectrum. Right. I was doing a little bit of research on him too. And this one fact I read about him, he was able to memorize all 150 songs by age five. And uh, I mean, that's just like crazy for me to think of, but it probably does, you know, support that he might have been on the spectrum. And I think of when I see like how highly ritualized he was, it makes me think of, you know, comparing him to today, uh, a lot of people, when they look at the Catholic Church, they're like, okay, this is too highly ritualized. And mm-hmm. like, why are they doing everything that we do in the Mass? Like, why are we kneeling down to certain parts? And why are we so particular about like how we receive the Eucharist? And more people are leaning towards a general spirituality and you know, just being good people in general. But I think of two things that... Uh, Bishop Thorak could teach us. Uh, number one being that, like, those rituals, I mean, they led him to be, like, such a pious person and, you know, probably a saint if he's not already. I don't, I don't, I don't think he is at the moment, but uh, Pope Francis, if you're listening, <laughs> <laughs> make him one. Let's, let's make it happen. <laughs> uh, and number two, so Bishop Thorak was you know, not perceived as uh, a normal person uh, just based on, you know, the fact that he didn't interact with priests in the same way that uh, others did. He tended towards, you know, being alone, talking to God instead of other people. And so maybe it makes us think about like what we perceive as normal in our life and recognize that that normal way may not always be you know the best way or at least not superior to the way that people on the spectrum might behave we may judge someone with autism like and whether they can seek out in the same way just because they're different but i have to recognize that my normal is not their normal and that they definitely have you know the same ability to find god I remember I was working with um, a bunch of uh, nuns in the an institution called I think it was it's called Morning Star uh, with the Sisters of Saint Joseph in uh, Rochester, and the institution itself was kind of it was kind of a uh, intensive daycare for children with mostly physical. uh, impairments that largely resulted from kind of very poor prenatal health Mm -hmm. and as a result they like they couldn't move oftentimes they couldn't move their bodies the way they wanted to there were girls with um very young girls with like uh sporadic seizure like movements there's one girl i think her name was nyla she was like she was she was permanently stuck in a wheelchair and the only things she could move in her body were her eyes 
and her tongue. And the rest of, for the rest of it, she had, it was just totally immobilized. And I mean, as the week went on, uh, we really, uh, my friend and I really did come to really love and appreciate them, especially the little things and how the little things add up uh, towards showing how strong they are. Because medical doctors had said that she would never move anything outside of her tongue and her eyes. But over time, she, I, I, I remember I came back one day and my friend Grace was kind of uh, playing with her and attending to her. And Grace like called me over and was like, look, look at this. And Nyla had started opening and closing her hand around Grace's finger. And that was like, we were, we were absolutely like flabbergasted because the nurse was like this, like this shouldn't be, this shouldn't be possible. She's, mm -hmm. you know, she, she like, doctors have said like, she can't do this. And almost seeing her do that was more powerful to me than the entire, than if I had seen somebody win the Olympics or something. Yeah. And it's really just, it's all, I think it's all about perspective and how when God makes us, you know, things that are born from humans, are part of nature and that's part of God. So I don't think he, I don't, I don't think God necessarily, necessarily wants us to all kind of worship him the same way. Yeah. Just kind of worship uh, him in their own way. Right. That's, you hit the nail on the head. We worship God with wherever we are in life because God doesn't put too much on our plate. He doesn't give us anything we can't handle. So, you know, me being a regularly functioning human being versus this girl who it was a miracle just to close her hand around something. The fact that we can both find God and find him fully just based on where we are in life, uh, I think that's super powerful. And I also think of in the Bible how uh, Jesus commends a poor lady who gives almost all that she has in the temple versus a rich person who gives more than her, but like a much smaller percentage of what they actually have. Exactly. And, no, I think the, I think the story mentions that she gave, I think one, one, I think it was like copper or one currency that, mm -hmm. uh, that she gave one unit of that but that was like, that was her entire life savings. Like that yeah. was her 401k and her pension plan and her retirement plan. Right. And the rich guy gave like a bucket full of coins, but mm -hmm. that was just, that was, he could have made that on Tuesday. Right. Exactly. So the fact that we're all given maybe a different amount of things, not only in terms of money, but in terms of abilities and the ability to behave what we do, call normal around other people no matter how much we're given we can give whatever we have back to god and i think that's what ties in back into free will the fact that we can give what we have to god we can choose to yeah right you have one more thing in the outline and i do it, it was, was a prayer that i don't necessarily know how candid it is but it was on the it was on the blog post by that father with the son on the spectrum mm -hmm. and 
Yeah, so I guess I'll, I'll, I'll pray that now. Yeah. Um, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Holy Thorlac, cut with the scythe of your workings, the thorns casting shadows in my unclear mind. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Joe, for doing this. I had okay. a blast. Anytime. Yeah. Hopefully, you know, we're kind of just like talking about whatever relating to psychology and the faith and free will and all that. But, you know, exactly. I believe and I made him talk about psychology out of his own free will. <sighs> it's going to be so hard to do that minor Joe. If you keep bringing this <laughs> up. Uh, wow. Oh. wow. Oh. I'm going to, okay. I'll be there every step of the way. <laughs> Uh, as long as you stop using reverse psychology on me, I'm done with it. Oh, that. of course. Like the, I've already gotten you to the mountaintop. Like, my, my, my work is done. I mean, quotes like, oh, the psychology department doesn't need someone like you. That, <laughs> it worked. It hurt. It did, and now we do. Now you got me. Not fully. I'm still doing chemistry. I mean, no, just, you got to keep doing the stuff you love. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be like, oh, now that you, now that like your thing with psychology, you can't hang out with chemistry. Like, oh. <laughs> uh, I'm glad that you allowed me to maintain that part of my life. I appreciate it. And I appreciate you coming on. So thanks for doing that. And to our listen, all of our listeners, uh, whether you're listening in the morning or the afternoon, the night, or whatever time Joe's clock says in the background. Thank you for listening, and God bless.